You're listening to WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick Community Radio from Goddard College. I listen when I'm naked. This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WGDR. I'm Tony Epstein. It's the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. Lying on your back in the grass, you can't see a thing except for the clear blue sky, a few cotton wool clouds. and higher in the great dome of the sky, filling it with song. Higher and higher, filling it with song. Filling it with song. They sound quite mad, don't they? Must be 
be, and that is all. True love can make a blade of grass stand up straight and tall in harmony with a cosmic sea. True love needs no company. It can cure the soul. It can make it whole. If dogs run free. Good morning, everyone out there, and good morning, Maya Tavares. Good morning, Tonio. How are you this morning? I'm so good this morning. That's great. <laughs> How are you? I'm good. Good. Yeah. I had this idea, and I'm I'm still wide open about what to talk about. I mean, there's there's a lot to talk about that we can talk about. It yeah. almost doesn't matter what we talk about. <laughs> we tend to come back to the central themes of you know what's what's. Uh, most important, regardless of what access point we kind of get to it from. But I'm totally open too. I had had this idea of talking about gender stuff and sure. and sexual identity and sure. things like that. But I imagine it can also turn on a dime in all sorts of directions. And then there's also the issue of doing heart work because mm. you had talked about some stuff that you were doing. Yeah, yeah. And that, that could come into it as well. I most certainly think that when we're talking about the questions of identity and, and how we are in the world and how we relate to other people, all of these things kind of come into play. Like what is what is my definition of what's possible for myself? What is my definition of what's possible in relationship with other? How does my heart come into that? I think it's all... It's all there. It's a rich topic, and I'd love to share more about that as well. I've been doing a lot of um, unwinding and unbinding and redefining in um, in heart work in relationship to self, and I'd love to bring that into the room as well. Wonderful. Mm -hmm. Maybe that would be a good place to start. Sure. I think as we engage more and more with life and each other, that realm is, is like right at the center of of everything. It is. And it's also in the center of our bodies. Mm, I like that. Yeah. So it makes sense that, that all things would pass through there at the very least, that everything has to connect through there. Mm. Or hopefully it, it would. And that's part of the journey, right? Is like if, if I haven't been in touch with heart center, like how do I come home to that so mm -hmm. that it can do exactly what you were talking about? Like what is my relationship with that process of everything coming from heart center? Am I, am I there? Where are the places I've protected against that? How do I notice that and that act of noticing and awareness? And how we're relating to things in the outer world if we're not at least checking in there or coming from that place to some degree. Yes, then everything seems to suffer, I think. I think so, from that. Um, my lack of 
embodied awareness of heart center and how much richness is possible in any moment if I can just come from that place and what's necessary and you know in my other wise body centers to get me to that place of feeling safe enough Mm. you know listening to safety cues like is this a space where I can be in open-hearted relation with self with other with world with greater resonance and what is the what are the wisdoms of my body that can get me there and there are all sorts of things that can make it difficult to connect at that level to feel safe absolutely to feel right whether that be um, a learning that we experienced earlier in life aka trauma aka trauma yeah <laughs> there's another way of saying that uh-huh. right like which can happen in many many different ways you can have really egregious traumas like really dramatic traumas and you can have micro traumas you can have little traumas of omission mm. which all tend to add up to the same kind of disconnection right from ourselves from our heart from our sense of who we really are. Right. Right. That languaging around like fundamentally somehow like this or you are not enough or wrong or all of those messages that we get when it's like, I can't reconcile why violence in, in any way is coming my way. And as if we're talking about gender and sexuality, also culturally messaging around that and how we internalize that from a young age when we, you know, come into this world not having a language for our language yet and being given all of this messaging that is a larger degree of that kind of fear-based programming around like, you are not okay. And how that kind of starts to weave that tapestry and all of the work that we then do as conscious embodied beings or getting there to that center point where we can see that touch it feel it honor it rename it this is a great topic also i just want to bring into the room that today planet venus is starting to move retrograde so we're in this journey starting today about how we relate with our hearts how we connect with other people but also like what are the undercurrents what are the flows what are the you know when venus is going direct it's all in the resonance and key of love and human relating but retrograde gives us this like different perspective on ourselves on our ways of relating on the ways that we need love and require love in the world and that conversation like culturally and astrologically is starting right now and so this is a perfect time to have this conversation so are you suggesting that when venus goes retrograde that it kind of gives us an opportunity to see the shadow side. Yeah. Yeah. So that's one of those. Sort of like unveils it in a way. Yeah. I was reading There's a, a fantastic astrologer. If, if folks don't know, her name is Chani Nicholas, and she's just brilliant in the way that she synthesizes what is going on for each of us, what is going on collectively, what is going on culturally, and starts to give language for these processes. And I was just reading her work this morning, and she was talking about, you know, when we see the other side of a planet, like you were saying, it gives us access to all of those maybe unnamed, maybe unhealed, maybe unloved parts of this theme, and gives us opportunity to see that more clearly 
and to bring our embodied presence there for a real opportunity for healing. The re in retrograde is also like all of the re words. So like, you know, redefine, rework, revisit all of those, you know, like we get our ghosts from the past and in the particular flavor of whatever planet that's retrograding in Mercury retrograde. It's, you know, like, how am I rethinking communication? But in Venus retrograde, it's how am I, how am I revisiting, revising, reviving my relationship with love? Which would be our relationship with everything. Exactly. And at least, well, I was going to say especially ourselves, but at least beginning with ourselves. And that's part of the learning, right? Is like, how do I come home to this center first? Right. And then from that place of, of expanded heart center, can I consciously engage with what I perceive to be other? When in the language of the heart, there's really no separation. And also how we perceive ourselves, because often from those vulnerable places early in life, we learn to, to take on those, those things, those statements that we feel or, or hear from the world around us that we're not okay. And we adopt that. Right. We take it in like, like a dry sponge. I'm not okay. Right. And there's usually a lot of evidence to reinforce that. Right. So how do we get to that place where we can be in the pivot point of that conversation? In this body that, you know, I was just having a conversation yesterday about how the body lives in whole time. And so when we can get into the body, we have access to the past as an alive present sensation. And when we can get there, then we can get our hands on an opportunity to create change. Right. Then we're at the alive point of being. Exactly. It's no longer a story that's just in my mind in this kind of ghost tape. And we're lost in it. Right, right. And we're not here. We're not in a place of of aliveness and power to, to move from here because you can't, you can only take a step from here. And if you're not here, if you're locked up in some past dissociation, you're like, nowhere, man. <laughs> that's, ex- that's exactly it. That's exactly it. And my mind feels so strong when it's engaged in thought, right? Because that's what mind does. It's like, oh, like, I'm just going to like hear the same loop over and over. And now I'm like really engaged, you know, but. Um, and it's so convincing because oh. that, that statement, I think, therefore I am. All right. <laughs> and the way our culture prioritizes like mind, like brain, brain, right. thinking brain, you know, in this illusion that that is the way we get through things as opposed to like, can I drop into my body and feel where that truth or that mistruth first entered and first became an embodied like resonance? And can I touch it from there? And can I shift it from there? And then poof. You know, we have that capacity to undo and unbind. The, our mind, you know, is just like little tracks and little tapes and little sentences that I run over and over and over again until they become the way that I hold my body. And they get into these patterns and these ruts, using words, creating narratives, and using words, symbols, and forgetting the direct connection with what those words and symbols really are. Right. Can and I that's get, where dropping into the body 
if, but we have to do that consciously. We have to remember that those words are just symbols, just the re-representations of things mm. in, and not mm. the direct experience. And that's an uphill climb in our culture because our culture doesn't recognize, doesn't honor that direct experience. It doesn't even know it exists. Oh, no. If we lived in a culture of honoring direct experience, there's no way that we could continue with our culture as is, which would be a beautiful thing, right? You know, like I have to, in order to, you know, put myself in in a box and sit and type at a computer for eight hours, I couldn't possibly be listening to the needs and truths of my body, right? Like in order to harm my body the way I would to comply with American beauty standards, you know, like for this idea that like, oh, this is how you're loved, right? Like love is a real thing that we all want and all deserve. And then we're given this like false language as to how to get it, right? right? Which is like such an insidious little trick to be like, oh, this primary need of ours, like let's engage with capitalism and let's engage with patriarchy and let's engage with all of these different things because this is how we're told to achieve this like fundamental human need. If we were really in the truth of our bodies and what that felt like, all of that would crumble. Yeah, and we wouldn't be treating the earth and each other the way that we do as objects, as others. Right. As things that aren't meaningful in relation to ourselves. Right. Unless we can gain something from them. Right. What's in it for me? That narrative. Right, well, and that depends on there being a me. (laughs) <laughs> right, exactly. And what is this me that we're referring to? Right. Where did that come from? Right. And that, what is it really? Right, that idea of separation, that idea of ego, that idea of like I in the world, which is this like individualist culture that we're in, as opposed to like heart truth, which is, as you were saying, like one, being connected, being aware that I can feel you in the room and I can have this connective, alive, real-time experience of the place where we harmonize. An open, kind of interactive relationship. Right. As opposed to a, a me and a you. Right, right. You know, playing ping pong across the studio with each other about like, okay, what are you going to say? What am I going to say? Right. As opposed to this experience that I love that we get to have when we sit and talk together, which is just kind of like, let's hold this energy between us and then see what wants to come out in two voices. <laughs> which yeah. is the way I feel when I talk to you. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The dance. Yeah. So maybe since we've laid a, a good safe bedwork we could jump into the gender stuff i'm happy to and how that began for you sure so we can actually ground it in our direct experience yeah i'll give you as much of a narrative as i can knowing that that narrative always changes because Mm -hmm. yeah and it may change as you're as you're telling it well that's the fun part right So you've heard a little bit of my like early formative story and I'll share it here that, you know, when I came into having a body, that was a very strange experience for me. And so my first experiences with body, regardless of gender, were just like, what is this? And I'm not sure that I want it. And I'm not sure that I'm comfortable in it because my understanding is energy. That's what is true for me. And so to have this like crystallized form feels fundamentally uncomfortable. I don't have a language for it. Like, why am I stuck in this 
thing. Yeah, yeah, right. So like that felt like enough of a limitation. <laughs> right. More than enough. Yeah. I'm like, well, I can't I can't move the way that I know how to move and I can't feel the way that I know how to feel that oneness, that bliss that happens before we come into body. There was a, a memory of that in me. And so that was what I was reconciling with. And then you hit school age years, right? Mm. And then you get this other layer of limitation that's placed on you, which is not only do you have a body, but because of the way your body is formed, there's this other set of ways you're going to be treated. And that to me just made no sense as it shouldn't for anybody, for any body, it should not make sense for us to be treated in different ways because of the form and shape of our physical body. And so being born with a body that was perceived as female and so hitting the intersections of, I don't know why I have a body, I want to be just light anyway, and you're telling me that because my body is shaped this way, it is inferior and limited. I'm an Aries sun and an Aries rising. So I just wanted to like smash through all of that. And honestly, that's a very difficult balance because of my respect for the divine feminine and because of the way that I understand how important it is to have feminine visibility specifically and feminine identity specifically as contributing to the voice that is happening in this culture my feminism as I was reconciling with my gender. My body had more than a female truth in it, and yet my politics were all about honoring the divine feminine. And so it's a many-layered conversation. But to come back, you know, I was a tomboy in that I was a kid, right? (laughs) Like, we're like, oh, are you, like, not wearing dresses and, like, not expressing yourself in this way that is traditionally feminine? We're going to call you masculine. You know, we all deserve the right to just be children and not have, you know, whatever role, even tomboy, like, put on us. Just explore the world. But that was the label that was put on me. And also my attractions from a very, very young age were toward other people who presenting femininely. The first people that I was developing affection for were my close female friends, and that was always true. Which is not to say that it was the only truth, but it was the truth that was the most alive in me. And so I remember a time when, you know, somewhere around middle school, late middle school, I started to have the perception that perhaps my friends were shifting into a different way of presenting their identity, aka they were becoming aware that the world sexualized femininity in a certain way and that they wanted to present that way, which is also a fabulous and valid choice. You know, when we make that like, what is my truth and how do I claim it? Like I'm thinking about like my friends who like from a super grounded, super radical super political place like claim femme identity and present that way and have a powerful choice that is too because it's a truth as long as we're rooted in our truth it's powerful and political but for me that wasn't my truth and I think the first time somebody asked me if I was gay I was 10 9 or 10 and I didn't even fully understand what the word meant 
right? But I knew that people were recognizing my difference. And who, who was asking that? A girl in my class who was a friend of mine and who had actually had in a close friendship contact with me and but was you know in a different social status than I was I was like nerdy and quiet and weird and she was super popular and so I think part of the way that she needed to reconcile that truth for herself was to direct it all toward me when you say direct it all toward you to uh, direct social what? attention you know like I think I mean we were certainly having a shared experience of mm-hmm. that connection and yet because I was maybe more masculine presenting because maybe I was, you know, didn't have the social status that she did. You know, it, it was like it became like a matter of minor gender bullying and, and a way to kind of offset that direction for her. We don't really know each other anymore. She, you know, is popular and doing her thing and living in straight cis world. And that's cool and fine. And hopefully her truth you know, those like early school contacts where you're like, oh yeah, I play with you and I know you and we're children together. And then we grow in our different ways and that's fine. But that was the first time that somebody was like, you're different. And and it wasn't necessarily a positive no, thing. No, no, no. My difference was never a positive thing in my childhood. In the way people responded to you. Yeah. 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 I grew up in um, mid-coast Maine in a relatively liberal town, like the coastal towns are pretty, for Maine, pretty aware, which is not to say that they're aware, but they're more aware than the rest of Maine, mm-hmm. right? Like you can, you can, if you want to practice time travel, you can do it in Maine, <laughs> or you can start in a city like Portland. And then the further north and west you go, the further back in time you go <laughs> in terms of beliefs and attitudes and structure. And so, you know, this was in the 90s. And so it was a time where my existence brought up questions for folks. The first time I got asked if I was actually born female, and and like maybe this person was just picking up on my resonance and the way that I was presenting because I was trying to at that point like blend in, right? It clearly wasn't working very well (laughs) because this kid was like, are you sure you've always been a girl? And... You know, he meant it in kind of a taunting way, but it was actually, you know, quite true. Revealing for you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I was, I think, 12 or 13 at that point. And, you know, over and over, my difference was reflected to me in the way that people responded to me. And looking back on that, I'm like, wow, like he was seeing something that I couldn't see. And at that point, you know, I was like trying to interact with dominant culture and trying to like, you know, maybe grow my hair out. Like maybe. How do I fit in this this mess? In this mess that I never really liked to begin with. Right. Right. How do I make a home in this place? I I don't even want a body. (laughs) And I don't want a body in this world. Right. Right. This world is just as crazy as this body. Exactly. And that was my lived experience. And I was like, I I just really don't know, you know, and add on to that a layer of already at this point, you know, 12, 13, starting to experience trauma, physical trauma in my house, which as we know, you know, trauma has this way of saying like, you're wrong and you 
the way that you are expressing yourself, you know, is is somehow unacceptable to me. And none of those things were true, but trauma has this way of kind of... Especially when we're young. In a way, it seems so unfair. And yet, that's the way nature works. Yeah. Right. Before we have a language to figure out what is happening to us, it is happening to us. Right. And then later we get the language to start to understand. And, and then we get to unravel it right. and, and make sense of it and integrate it and do whatever it takes to right. you know, reassemble ourselves in some meaningful, sane way. Exactly. <laughs> and so, you know, I think back on this person and I have so much compassion for them now because, you know, I didn't know how to dress myself. I didn't know what I liked. I didn't know because I was kind of in this disembodied state, both from a place of gender and a place of my fundamental personhood. And so I was just kind of floating in this way that's like, well, none of this makes sense to me. Myself doesn't make sense to me. Certainly the way that other people are presenting themselves doesn't make sense to me, but I don't really know what I am. And so I just kind of hovered in this place where like I had to make decisions to like dress myself every day, but they were really... <laughs> I, I have I have no idea. It was just this floating, unsure, witnessing experience where I didn't quite know where I landed. Mixed with this like very driven, very fiery, very analytical human who had a lot of power in them that I can also see now. And so it was this balance of like, I have a lot of force and I don't know where to put it. So I spent, you know, a couple of years unsure and sure my mom tells me that from the ages of 13 to 15, 12 to 15, was the only time she didn't really recognize me. And those were the times when I was trying, you know, I had like asked for a Barbie, I think, for Christmas one time in that time, you know, I was like, this is what I should like, right? And she just like, she told me this later that she was like, I wonder what's going on with this person because this is not the child that I know. So this was... My sense is that this was a time when you were really deeply engaged in a wrestling match with yourself. Yeah. Yeah. That you, you really didn't know and you, you were trying to find, you know, your way through it. Find the thread. Yeah. Without, without connection to a body. So just tumbling through cultural messaging and tumbling through what is my truth and spirituality started coming into play in that at age 12, which thank God for that, and a language of Reiki and meditation and starting to have a language for my energy body, which was a place where I found cohesive whole. And that was, I think, a huge protective factor for me in being able to know that like, no, I do have a body that I can relate to and it has no gender and it has no rules to it because it lives in this quantum field of possibility. And that was the place that I could say yes. But it was competing with a barrage of worldly experience that was right. coming from the opposite direction. Right. So, yeah. And continually. Absolutely. I mean, trying to be a, a teenager and getting cultural messaging around like, this is how you are. This is how you love. This is how you present yourself. This is the person you should be attracted to. This is what that attraction looks like. These are the dynamics between people. And I'm none of it. And I'm none of it. <laughs> <laughs> and none of, none of this feels good to me. And honestly, that was a gift. 
because I knew that somehow I was not that, it gave me an ability to analyze the cultural messaging that I was being fed. And you had you had a, a meaningful reference point, which was really wonderful to find at that age. Yeah, I was like, I'm not that. And then the times when I and I don't have to be that. Yeah, even under duress. Yeah, I didn't know what I was, but I knew what I wasn't. Mm-hmm. And you know, so I tried it on. I tried on different things. I feel like my entire childhood was just like trying on different costumes that didn't quite fit right. <laughs> and that's that's fine. You know, that's how we learn. Oh yeah, well, this one. That's doesn't... kind of that's the Hindu tradition mm. of going through all the things that we're not. Exactly. Until we finally exhaust all those possibilities of what we're not. Right. Is consciousness my hand? Okay, let's remove the hand. Is consciousness my arm? Let's remove the arm. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully not actually removing it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I just, I, I, I forget where I was reading that within, within reference to Hindu wisdom of that, of that exploration of self. Well, right. if I'm not my hand, you know, if I'm not this, if I'm not that, and finally I come to the understanding, I'm not, I'm not my body. I'm not any of this. I'm not any of this, and yet I infuse all of this, and there's that yes. harmony between my body is an, is a reflection of my vibration. My body carries my vibration. An emanation. Yeah, I am. I am from this source point, and from this source point rippling on out, and that source point and its ripples first in energy form, then in emotive form and, and thought form, and then in physical form. It's all manifestation of this initial ripple. And the trick is to, is to align it all. Exactly. Yeah. And so like, I feel like for me, I came from energetic understanding and finally, finally, only recently coming into physical harmony. And then, you know, that's work I'd love to just touch on because it's so brilliant and it's so alive in me because it's been what I've been doing this summer. You know, this has been like a long, a long process. And it'll keep going on. Forever. As you know, as long as I have a physical form, I am, I am learning because this is, this is the place we come to learn and to have embodied experience. Exactly. This is not meant to be where things necessarily get resolved. This is where we, we live the questions. Oh, that's such a beautiful way of saying that. It's like, this world is not the answer. And, and that's another thing. We're so programmed to search for answers, to fix things, to make things right in this world. And yet, the more and more I, I feel into it and look at circumstances and the way things tend to go, the more I, I get the sense that there aren't any answers on this level, in this world, in that way. Yes. That we're born into this world and we're going to die. There's no escape from that. Right. There's no, there's no mythological heaven in this world. You can have an experience of heaven, but it's not based on this world. It's mm. based on that kind of integration, that paradoxical integration of the formless with the form. Mm. And aligning them, integrating them somehow, embracing the paradoxical nature of our beings, if we can do that. Agreed. Agreed. And this concept of like heaven, divine bliss, everything's okay, you know, hell is suffering. And how, you know, the myth tells us our actions determine whether we go to heaven or we go to hell, right? As this like end point. But it's really like, 
my reality, my thought form, my way of being, the way that I move through the world dictates whether I have a blissful experience or a suffering experience. (laughs) And that's quite literal, right? And it's not about like what happens after. What happens after is always bliss, right? No matter what, like we're returning to source and energy and that's physics and that's thermodynamics. But the truth is we always return to this place of bliss and pure resonance so heaven and and hell concept are really about like what is the experience you want to have here how do i cultivate my waveform how do i cultivate my action how do i choose to and that like you were saying it's about transcendence of the physical conversation to get to the energetic conversation embodying both yeah not dismissing one or the other but recognizing the interrelationship right that when we have a body, we have that. There's yes. no escaping that unless right. we close our eyes and try and do some kind of trickery. Right. Right. And how like we can use our sensory bodies to find absolute delight. Mm-hmm. And how it really just depends on what we cultivate our attention toward. And how comfortable we are with the unknown. Mm. Being with the question and not thinking that we have to find the answer or or to find resolution. Right. Right. I mean that's that's living in whole time. Yes. It's the it's the brain that desires linear resolution, but it's the body that's comfortable in that whole time conversation. No, not necessarily the brain but the ego. Mm. That's yeah. a good distinction. Yeah. Yeah. And that like when I'm in my body, when I'm in the language of infinite possibility and whole time and all of those sensations that I'm experiencing at once. You know, I have a friend who um, we were standing on a beach and the rocks were uncomfortable on their feet and they were talking about like shifting their perception, right? Like, okay, I stand on the rocks and I experience pain in my feet. And if I can harmonize the fact that I am experiencing pain in my feet with all of the sensory delight that I am also experiencing standing on this beach, you know, watching the moon rise, it was this like luscious orange, just beautiful, full, huge moon that was just rippling on the water and watching the water come up and feeling the humidity and the salt on our skin and and just this like full sensory, the sound, all of the different sensory information that we're experiencing and this one pain point of the rocks under their feet and so if i can reconcile the fact that there is some pain in this experience and i can open my scope of awareness to all of the pleasure sensations that are also happening how i can be in that whole time experience of everything all at once which is i think how we how we truly are experiencing something like i may have a point of discomfort And I can delocalize my focus on that and experience all of the different wisdom that's happening and all of the different joys that are happening at the same time. Yeah, learning to find some kind of acceptance and relax with things that may feel like they're uncomfortable or unresolved or not quite right. Right. Like, I hear you. Yes. Whether if that's like a conversation in my body, I hear, I hear you that you're in process and I hear you that you're in question and I can love you in that process and I can support you in that question. Like being with a child. I'm here while you're crying, while you're in pain, whatever it is, I'm here. I don't have any answer or solution, but I'm here. Presence. Yes. And there's something magical about two presences together. Absolutely. And the way that if we hold presence together, we're able to 
cultivate that energy of witness both within and interpersonally and what, yeah. how powerful that is when yes. we're able to bring loving witness to right. to the center of the space between us. Right. Two or more. Two or more. Yeah. And how, you know, going back to this conversation we were talking about, about trauma and how so often we experience it before we have the language for what we're experiencing and how to cultivate that practice of being that wise parent or adult or knowing figure for our own experience for ourselves yeah and to say in the whole time of the body where anything is possible i hear you you know to our trauma response or to our pain or to our fear and to be that to supplement that experience that we didn't get the first time right let's let's go into that let's relax into this together right yeah that concept of There is so much possibility for nourishing our own healing when we get outside of the illusion of linear time. And from an early age, I I was always drawn towards the formless kind of meditation, not not any of the regimented things. Even though I trained in all of that as well, which which then made the formless stuff so wonderful and easy and you know it's like direct going directly into that relaxation process of just sinking into it, sinking into that realm of infinite possibility. Mm. And when we have an embodied knowing of that realm of infinite possibility, we can draw on that well to start to inform all of the parts of us that are still holding um, in those conversations that we've had. For me, like I'm thinking, I'm listening to you and I'm picturing these um, resonances because we're always having a conversation of resonance and so if I have a story in me you know if I I didn't get this thing when I really needed it or I'm hurt or I'm I'm wrong on some level and that's a resonance that I'm carrying in me and that I'm expressing on every level of my form right for me it's that I bring my shoulders forward right and I I bring my chest in um which is So like if the resonance is dictating my form, but then I can go and have that experience of perfection, of bliss, of divinity, of formlessness, of raw potential, and come to understand that that is my truth, then these waveforms start to harmonize. You know, it's like a conversation where there's one voice versus a conversation where there's two voices. And suddenly we start to see this entering of another possibility into that conversation entering of another resonance when i have a direct experience of everything is perfect right here right now everything is in harmony as it should be and if everything is perfect then i am also perfect and it starts to just lovingly question or add resonance to that other held belief and start to bring it up to date and then then the tone changes in my resonance that I'm holding in my body and my tone changes, my physical tone changes. My shoulders start to come back, my chest starts to open and I start to carry a different truth in me because I've accessed it from that pivot point of possibility, because I've experienced it from the body on out in that real-time way that we experience meditative truth. Connecting with that openness. Yes. That openness of possibility 
as opposed to those isolated, localized, past things that in some kind of strange way get crystallized in our bodies, our beings, on different levels. We can feel it physically, we can feel it emotionally, and then it can get translated into stories, into words and sentences that reinforce it. And we can get caught in these loops, these endless vicious cycles that, that help not only perpetuate it, but can even increase it. Right, right. And how liberating is it? I'm, I'm, as you're talking, I'm thinking about like how we're constantly at a cellular level rewriting our story. We're constantly creating new cells. Every minute, cells in me are dying, cells in me are being rewritten, and it's being rewritten based on a cellular code that is here and tells me how to restructure. And so what is that code drawing on for information? You know, the the same physical form that I'm holding, you know, I've held this pattern in my shoulder for 19 years, right? Those shoulder muscles are not made of the same cells that they were 19 years ago. And so so what's dictated the way that I hold my shoulder? Like what's dictated the form of that muscle and that tendency of that muscle? Because at a quantum level, at a physical level, I'm remaking myself every minute. And so how do I get to that conversation where I have the opportunity to say to my physical cells, which become a whole muscle, you can hold this way now. You're more free. Allow relaxation. Yeah. Yeah. And possibility of newness, new structure that as we were in the beginning of this conversation, we're talking about starts within, mm-hmm. starts at, I can hold my heart differently. And then from that place ripples out into, and I can hold us differently. And I can hold my concept of the world differently. And now as, you know, if I'm a cell to like go into more of a macro conversation, if the world is a body and I'm a cell in that body that's constantly being remade, now my cell is vibrating differently. And if each of us is doing that, if each cell is redefining into into quantum potential, the body of the world can resonate differently. Yeah, there's these all these different nested levels of all of that. And there's narratives, or you could call it DNA coding, or whatever you want and, to call it. And that's the delight of the scientific language we we're getting and the esoteric languages that we've had and how we're starting to get to that point where those conversations are becoming the same thing and what a, what an exciting time to be having this conversation because we can have it in two languages and they can merge meaning can align itself right. or we can align those those meanings which for me is really a magical thing I love that I mean we're living in this world where we we do engage in thinking and intellectual understanding. And there's something, you know, we, we get those dopamine reward hits when we connect dots, when right. we make connections. <laughs> it's very seductive, very pleasurable, very enjoyable. And for in a body, I mean, we tend to move towards pleasure. Right. Unless we've been so traumatized that, that we don't know how to do that. 
that's a really beautiful thing to bring into the room um, and a practice that I've been working with personally. And I really love that when we're connected to this center, we tend to draw out the things that really land. Uh, and for me, um, as, a, as a queer person, as a trans person, as a person who, um, whose identity around how we find joy and love and pleasure in the world has been given a narrative of fear from our culture. Learning to undo those stories goes so far back and is work that I've been consciously doing around like what is my fundamental human right in this body that is capable of experiencing pleasure and joy and connection and how because of the fear language of our culture we've been given a very strict way as to how to do that. Um, you know, one, one biological man, one biological woman, only for reproduction, you know, like all of these different ways that we've, that our world has met our power with fear because our, our sensory body, our joy body, our pleasure body is also our creative body. That's where all of our magic lies and how, pleasure one has been sexualized which like that's one way of experiencing that's joy and pleasure right. and and that's lovely for one and totally valid and two there are so many ways that we can engage with our sensory body with joy and with pleasure that awaken our creative force and so many combinations of ways yeah engaging other aspects of our being right just saying like this this form is alive, beautiful, capable of experiencing joy in so many ways. This is a vehicle, and the possibilities are virtually infinite. Right, and to come back into the, the truth, as we were just saying, that, that place where we get, when we get to the center of ourselves, which is the center of the universe, it's joy. In, in a certain philosophy of yoga... Um, there's what's called the koshas and the koshas, uh, it means sheath. And so it's layers of our being. And so it starts in the anamaya kosha, which is the physical body, but it moves into the pranamaya kosha, which is the breath body. And then into the monomaya kosha, which is the mind body, the vijnanamaya kosha, which is the knowledge body, which I really love that it's separated mind from knowing, um, you know, as Dan Siegel would say, like the rim of the wheel, right? The knowns and the knowing, um, the experience of knowing. And then at that raw center is Ananda Maya Kosha, which is the bliss body. So it's named. And so we go from, through these layers of experience, all tied together, all informing one another. But our ultimate truth at our center is bliss. And so when we remember that, that freedom that comes from saying right so that that center that that bliss is actually the bliss of of infinite possibility yes yes and, and that's that's a that's like a an all inclusive kind of wholeness that that transcends all limitations it transcends our physical sensibilities and encompasses all the unknown and literally you know infinite potential, infinite possibility, which right. is totally beyond our ability to conceive of, which is the whole point. 
Exactly. And when I have a, a direct experience, however I get there, whatever knowledge, tradition, whatever movement, whatever interpersonal relationship I have that brings me there, when I have a known felt sense experience of the truth of my being, which is bliss, it ripples through all of those other stories of limitation that say, you know, like, you're this, you're that, this is the way you have to be if you have this body, this is the way you have to be if you have this gender, this is what having this sexuality means the world is going to meet you with. It just, boof, 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 it just moves through all of those layers to redefine what is possible with a sense of infinite compassion, infinite love, infinite freedom, infinite possibility, and acceptance of who we each are and what our truth is, because at the center, our truth is the same. And no matter what's going on out here in this outer world, we can actually relax into that infinite state. Right. Literally, no matter what's going on out here. Although, if we don't have, if we're not well trained in that, it's easy to be drawn back into our body. We are just as attracted, drawn by pain as by the pleasure. In fact, we've been conditioned actually to be drawn more by the pain in our, from our culture, okay. which is always telling us what, what's wrong with us, right. as opposed to telling us what's right with us. Right. Or that we're okay just the way we are. You use the, the term, we're perfect as we are. Yeah. I really... I really believe that from that from that place of of meditation which i think was such a protective factor for me as a young person to have a meditation practice to say like a new perspective yeah completely like <laughs> i just reflected back on the title of of a book in the in the the carlos castaneda series a separate reality Mm-hmm. Although it's not separate, it's actually integrating it, but it's, it's, it's separate from this crazy cultural reality. Right, right. And, you know, like as we're evolving, like you were saying, like we're still kind of in, um, as Eckhart Tolle says, the pain body. Pain body, right. Yeah, so right. We're, we're still in pain body, which, right. um, yeah. and, you know, as we grow as a culture, as we grow as a, as a group of humans on a planet, pain is a very helpful teacher and a very helpful protector in that it is one of the first ways we keep ourselves safe, right? Like if I experience pain, I have a very strong aversive reaction and say, oh, don't do that again. And so pain as teacher can be a very helpful way to learn, oh, um, maybe I shouldn't do that. At its center, pain teaches me. And then at a certain point, learning to honor pain as teacher, learning to take those lessons, and then learning that pain is ultimately trying to drive me back towards joy, right? My point is not to stay in my pain. Right. My pain is there not to, to course correct me back to, to joy. Not to identify with the pain. Right. Like, oh, I touch a stove. It is hot. My body says, ouch, because I have these brilliant you know, heat receptors in my body and pain receptors in my body that say, don't do that. I course correct, take the learning, and come back to joy. And this reminds me of this wonderful story that, that I heard where you know, someone puts their hand on the hot burning stove and goes, ouch, that really hurts. But they don't take their hand away from it. They start to, this is painful. Oh, this is horrible. This is just horrible. And, and increasing the story about how horrible it is. Right. When all we have to do is take our hand away from it. 
Right. And to say, thank you, teacher. Thank you for giving me just enough suffering to course correct me back to my inherent state of joy. And yet, many of us have learned to do just that same thing where, where we experience this pain. It's not as clear perceptually, but it's very similar. It's the same pattern. We're experiencing this pain, and then we start identifying with it, and we're missing out on the freedom to release ourselves from it. And that, for so many of us, you know, it's, it's never as literal as my hand on a stove, mm-hmm. you know, the ways that we... Or as harm, obvious. Or as obvious, right? Yeah. Like, we've got that one down, right. you know? That like, one's easy. Yeah, like, we've, we've got, like, Anamaya Kosha suffering, like, oh, that hurts. I'm going to stop doing that thing that hurts me. Um, but emotional pain or interrelational pain or, or cultural pain, we're still really reconciling with. And how do we each remember, like, I'm divinity, joy, and bliss. And anything that tells me that I'm not is coming from a place of limitation. And is a reminder that we still have those limitations running in, in our being somewhere, in our brain, in, in that default network mode, yeah, the old programming. And this is... The Magical Mystery Tour. I'm here with Maya Tavares. And this whole notion of of being able to connect on a whole nother level of our true essence being not being this physical world in our is a kind of a queer notion. Mm. So this could be a good place to mm. to talk about what queerness is and, and yeah. how that fits. Because growing up, I was exposed to lesbians and gay men and there was a strong identity around that and it's only been more recently that I've been encountering more and more people who identify as queer and that's mm. it's, it's a much more amorphous um, less easily identifiable um, identity yeah for me the word queer resonates within the plane of possibility mm. so um you know, I've had lots of, it's, it's fun to talk about um, gender and sexuality and the ways that they inform one another and the ways that they inform the language that we use. Um, so for me, and moving from like binary identity, which, you know, is also, again, like going back to like, what is your truth? If it's your truth from your center is radical. And so each of our ability to claim what is true, because for me, when I talk about transness or when I talk about queerness or when I talk about gender, I'm talking from my truth, knowing that there are many people in the world who have done the same soul seeking I've done and have come to their truth, which might be I identify as a man or identify as a woman and that that is just as powerful because it's coming from our center of truth. So for me, um, I identify as non-binary and as queer and as trans as my gender identities and that's my truth. And so, you know, holding that like great love and respect for each way that we each come to our own truth and that process. Um, But for me... So to use words like gay or lesbian, it's a two-parted definition, right? Because in order to be a lesbian, I need to be a woman. Mm-hmm. Um, and I need to be attracted to people who are also women. Mm-hmm. So once you get into non-binary queer identity and transness and the fluidity of gender, 
the word lesbian for me doesn't accurately describe who I am and and sometimes who I'm attracted to, nor does it describe the experience of the person who is relating to me. Um, because the world will receive us in so many different ways and because it's so many layers of, of how we are with one another. And so queer gives me a place to say, not straight, definitely not straight, um, but that's pretty much the only thing I know. Right. <laughs> and there's, all, I mean, there's also a pain body story there because queer as a term, you know, came from derogatory terminology, came right. from fear and came from a process of reclamation of that word into joy body. Mm-hmm. But there is a story of radical liberation of the term there as well. And so using a term like queer, I've had quite a journey with, you know, because in the beginning it was like, you know, queer like, queer like response, queer like, like powerful political. And it still is for me, um, though my power and how I've used my power has gained a more diverse language. Um, heart power. And which is not to say that heart power can't be fiery because sometimes it needs to be. You know, when we act from a place of divine love, that can look like really strong resistance. That can look like political action. That can look like a hard no. Like radical love can look like that. Um, and queer has that resonance to me. It, it comes from a place of joy and pride and and also honoring the the suffering of so many generations and bringing it into a place of celebration. And from a, a linguistic point of view, giving an accurate translation to my identity without being specific. Mm. I like that. I really like that. Mm. When I was growing up, the term queer was, was thrown about. I was called a girl at times. And that, of course, was, was a derogatory term or, or being called queer. Um, people didn't even know what they were saying. Right. They were just using these epithets just because they were like weapons. Right. Oh, it just means bad. It queer means, means bad. bad. It Girl means, means bad, which is exactly. like, look at our culture, right? Yeah. And how like the layers of fear and misogyny mm-hmm. that exist, like, oh, I'm just going to call you a thing that means less than. Right. Exactly. I'm going to put you down. Right. And how in queerness, particularly when we look at like who is most targeted in the fear response to queerness, we're looking at so many layers of identity because we're looking at the feminine being targeted more than the masculine. You know, whether you're in a body that was assigned male at birth and you're expressing your femininity, well, that must be deviant and that must be queer and therefore that must be not okay. And if we look at incidents of violence, we can see culturally where the pain arc is in this relationship to gender and sexuality and misogyny and patriarchy because the intersectionality of oppression that happens in queerness, it's specifically trans women of color who are experiencing the most violence in the way that our culture responds with fear from all of these ingrained toxicities of perceived otherness 
And we can look at queerness as a way of really seeing our entire culture and the places where our entire culture needs reconciliation and needs to heal. And not just from a place of, I understand that we're all divinity, light, and bliss, but from that place of, I am willing to hear your pain and like what real reconciliation work looks like. And we can see, because it is when we, when we think of queerness, we think about exactly the experience that you were just sharing about people using queer as a derogatory word, as people saying, you know, this, this derivates from what I perceive as normal and normal structure is, you know, straight, white, cis, male on top. And, and all of our layers of how we look at privilege come out in queerness but also looking at like uh, the history of queerness in our culture and how, you know, with Stonewall and with pride, who was doing that, you know? So the history of, of what we would consider the gay and lesbian movement, because it's like, okay, like let's focus on these rights first. And then we get to, you know, like all, <laughs> all of you folks who are just like a little bit more freaky, right? Which is, you know, where I play. Um, but, Stonewall as a bar, the reason that police were raiding Stonewall as a bar, the the laws that they were falling back on were gender dress code laws about how many articles of clothing of the opposite sex that you were legally allowed to be wearing. And that was the that was the precedent that allowed for those raids. And so it was a, a literal policing of our presentation of gender. And who was it who was being policed the most was people who were expressing their femininity, people who were assigned male expressing their femininity. And who was it that started those riots? And who was it that birthed what we know as pride, which now finally we're starting to be able to have conversations about like nonlinear queerness. But it was always about fear of personal expression and divine feminine. Divine Feminine is, is a fascinating topic as well. And I was about to jump onto the heart work mm. in that because this work of acceptance, of integrating all these aspects of the pain body as they've manifested, especially in certain parts of our culture that you were just talking about, right. that need healing, that need that, need that, that space, that open loving acceptance that this culture is not schooled in. Yes. It's still a culture of separateness and division and hierarchies of what's right, what's wrong, what's better, what's worse. And it's devastated many of us. It's devastated the perpetrators of that kind of violence as well because they're cutting themselves off from that experience of connection and possibility. Right. All of us living in, in relation to that story of fear versus love. Mm-hmm. And how do we come back to the truth? How do we come back to nurture that? How do we come back to honor the ways that our culture has received us or told us what is 
what is the proper way of being and how has each person integrated that, um, whether they're a perpetrator of violence or, or an experiencer of violence or both because we experience things in such complex ways as human beings and how do we get back to that place of compassionate witness of holding and reconciling and seeing the suffering because we're in venus retrograde right how do i love the shadow how do i love every place that i've held every place that i've been and how do we from that place of compassionate witness of one another just by being seen with love start to believe that something else is possible I can't believe this time has gone by so fast, but I know I, you know, I want to, I want to talk about work specifically that I've been doing around coming into my body and coming into a place of really radical compassion at the everything space in Montpelier on main street in Montpelier called re-embodiment training, which for me was embodiment training, right? Because it's the first time, the first time mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm learning about like coming into a body to begin with. Um, but once I got there, what were the stories that were there? And it's never too late. That's, that's the takeaway. It's never too late. Because when we come into the body, we come into whole time. And we come into the, into the possibility of all of these conversations that we've had. And the embodied knowing that there is another way that I can be. And that the way that I fundamentally am from my center is right and good and beautiful. And that starts with self-compassion. That starts with the heart work of self. And when I can come there, I can understand that I can interact with you without fear because, because I'm good. And because you're good. And because we can come from that place of safety and love from just having the capacity to witness one another. And every way and every world that has told me a story that is not that, okay, okay. Having compassion for that, you, you, you did the best you could. You came from an experience that was limited and still bound in, in our collective journey, but that doesn't have to be my truth. And I don't have to embody that truth anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, that Marianne Williamson quote, I am not going to do it perfectly, but you know, like our, our task is not to seek for love or is it Rumi maybe she's paraphrasing Rumi uh, she Marianne Williamson is you know it's it's not that we're we don't fear that we have no power we fear that we're powerful beyond our our wildest belief but it's Rumi you know your task is not to seek for love but to undo all of the walls within yourself that you've built against it yes that's the work and that's I think one of the reasons why we're so afraid of our power is subconsciously we know how we've used our power against ourselves mm. Mm. and against others. Right, right. I mean, it takes a lot of power to, to continue a narrative that is not true. Exactly, exactly, yes. It does, it really does. That's a lot of effort. That's a lot of effort and to defy what is and succeed Mm. yeah that's a bending of reality that our powerful minds have been able to do yes and what would it look like if we were to just let go just let go just relax and this this reminds me back many years ago when i was doing um my psychedelic explorations i would ask for something at the end that i could bring back something really simple i could bring back to remind me of this understanding Mm. And every time I got the same thing, it said, just relax. 
Just relax. That's beautiful. And when I heard it, it made total sense. But afterwards, I'm thinking, relax? That's easy. That's so easy for you to say. (laughs) Right. Like in that place of knowing, when we're already in that state of truth, we're like, ah, yes, I hear truth. But when we're experiencing the pain body to relax, it's like we learn to tense up that it's the only thing we have to protect us from the pain. Right. Little do we know. Right. That we can become like water. Yes. That there are other possibilities. There's infinite creative possibility available to us. But when we get stuck and identified in the pain, in the pain body or with the suffering, we trap ourselves. That's, that's the power. That's the misuse of the tremendous power we have. Yes. Yes. And what would it be like to be able to, as you said, relax and release all of our creative force from engaging in mistruth and free up all of that power to do something new with? Right. And back to that Rumi quote where just stop giving your power to these things that are blocked, that are holding you back. And there's another Rumi thing. Knocking on the door and then realizing that I've been inside mm-hmm. all the time. <laughs> right. Right. Like, how can I change my perspective to allow more freedom? How can I see where I've been? And then if I can see where I've been, then I can gain more context to where I could be. Right. See the bigger picture of the relationship. Right. Right. Like if I'm holding on to one thing with my hand, literally the only thing my hand can do is hold on to that. Right. My hand can do so many things. But if I'm holding my pain in my fist, all I can do is make a fist. And all a fist does is fight, right? But if I let go of the thing that I am holding, my hand can make an infinite amount of shapes. It can touch in different ways. It can connect in different ways. I have languages in my hands. I've come back into infinite possibility of movement just by putting down, just by releasing, just by letting go, just by relaxing. And now I come back into possibility because gravity will take that from me. All I have to do is let go. Yeah, wow. That relaxing allows the fundamental quality of the universe to work for us. Exactly. Like, why fight against anything when we can just let go and go with what is possible? Even if it is unknown, I guess it's just the fear of past pain that Mm. makes us distrust that kind of infinite possibility. Mm. And yet, that infinite possibility, again, is where it's all at. And that's it. Like, my fear might be so convincing. And my fear is a pretty big motivator, right, when it's in my own brain to, to not let go. But the reward is always bigger than the challenge. And so if my fear is that big, can you only imagine what the reward for letting go of the fear can be and coming into that state of reverent awe for the wisdom and the flow that can move me if I simply allow myself to be moved. 
And even if you don't trust that, to just be willing to explore. Right. What is the joy that exists just outside of what I define as possible? Or just what is possible? It's like we already know the pain side of it, the mm -hmm. limitation. Do we want to spend the rest of our life there? Is it worth holding on to that just to protect ourselves from some imaginary notion of, of more of that or, or something worse? Right, right. If at any given moment there is equal truth in my body, discomfort, bliss, where do I shift my focus? And how could I, how could I be in a different truth of just what is? But of course, when you're in pain, you're usually not aware of bliss or pleasure. Right. It's like the experience of fear blocks out the experience of love. Pain usually eclipses our awareness that anything else is possible. Right. Our sense of what we are is just a story. It's just made up. And we can make up anything. And that's what possibility is about. So we can play. But we can also just let it all go and relax. Mm. Living in this world, we need to relax a lot more. We need to really let ourselves go. Yeah. And be moved by what comes out of that hollow space. That infinite void. Yeah. yeah. The divine feminine. The divine feminine. Yin. Yeah. The void. That's what it is. If we can honor that if we can honor the void, the space, the hollow, the potential, the unformedness in the womb, we can give birth to so many miracles. And the greatest miracle of all, of course, is just being in that infinite state of possibility. Just to be. <laughs> that's, the, that's our biggest challenge, is just be. Yep. Maya Tavares. Again, as usual, this has been a wonderful conversation and just a wonderful experience. It's always wonderful to, to be with you. I love spending time with you in the center place between us in heart space and possibility. Thank you. Mm, thank you. I'm often asked what it's like to see thought forms. Well, it's a lot like listening, only with your eyes. I can see a thought before you've spoken it, which is interesting and sometimes helpful, but not all there is to see, not by a long shot. See, thought is a subtle form of sound. It comes from the deep levels of the ocean of mind, like a bubble beginning at the bottom of the sea. When it gets to the surface of the ocean of mind, it's experienced as a thought. But before it gets to the surface, before you're even aware of what you're thinking, the impulses of your thoughts are forming and rising one after another from the deeply hidden part of you, the part that's hidden even from yourself. Even you don't know what it is till it comes up out of the depths of who you are and makes a dent and you go, hey, why didn't I think of that before? Or what was I thinking? Or, uh-oh. Most people are unaware of these impulses. They don't know what they're thinking until it gets up to the duh frequency. WDUH, the 24-7 adult contempo radio station of the mind. 
Some people don't know what they're thinking even then. And of course, there are those who just don't think at all. But never mind, so to speak. Here's the thing. There are many levels of thought. Some of the great masters can see what you're going to think before you even think it. When someone can see that deeper level of thought, they can really know a lot about a person. My uncle, or as we called him, Uncle Lenny, he could see your thoughts before they made their way into your conscious mind. It was spooky. He would laugh before you started the joke, never mind getting to the punchline. He would laugh before you even knew you were going to tell a joke. But sight like Uncle Lenny had, that's very rare. Mostly, we can't see things. Really, we can hardly see any of what all there is to see. Sound waves, radio waves, microwaves, electrons, muons, quarks, harukas, and dakinis. Not to mention the parallel worlds. Parallel worlds exist everywhere. You're constantly walking through one door and into another. Hey, this one opens. Bam. That one doesn't. Feels like a glitch. That's what we call it. But when something happens just the way it's supposed to, you're walking through the doors of unseen worlds, and the non-material ones are opening those doors ushering you through, making way for the unfolding of your destiny. And when something just won't happen, no matter how hard you try, you're being redirected to different doors, different roads, different worlds. The more you can see, the more you can live without banging into something and getting knocked about. The more you can adjust direction, make your way along the path as it opens up before you. Now, you might think what you can see is what you can see, that you're born with the limits of your optical biology. Some people are born colorblind, some people need glasses, I can see a thought before it's spoken, that creature in the movie Predator could see heat coming off a moving light form, unless of course it was covered with mud. But that's not it. That's not the way it works. What you see is not determined by your optical orbs. What you see is determined by your beliefs. They don't call it a point of view for nothing. And while that point of view may seem like a fact, later, after we've seen things from a different point of view, we realize it wasn't a fact at all. It was seriously limited, short-sighted, cockeyed, unseeing, dim, dead, dun, dun. G.K. Chesterton said, the essence of every picture is the frame. Widen the frame. Expand your horizons. Go where that sign says, scenic view ahead. Open your mind and your eyes will follow. Ask yourself, who's there? Then go, knock, knock. You are standing at the threshold of observability. You are surrounded by worlds and beings, matter and energy, seen and unseen, born and dying. So make a little bow to the unseen world. Shift the frame. Blink. Look again. Dream a little dream of me. Life lesson number two. What you see is what you get, but there's a lot more to see than you think. 
Get Life is constructed according to plans formulated by the architects of being and appears on the inhabited planets either by direct importation or as a result of the operations of the life carriers of the local universes. These carriers of life are among the most interesting and versatile of the diverse family of universe suns. They are entrusted with designing and carrying creature life to the planetary spheres. And, after planting this life on such new worlds, they remain there for long periods to foster its development. Support your local life carrier. This message has been a public service announcement brought to you by your local universe. Life Carrier and Little Frida's Life Lessons come courtesy of ZBS Media at zbs.org. And that's it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for listening. If you missed any of the show or would like to hear it again, you can find this and all Magical Mystery Tour shows at soundcloud.com slash WGDR. That's soundcloud.com slash WGDR. And until next time, take good care of yourselves and each other.